Welcome to Digging Deeper, a podcast of the Glendale Road Church of Christ. I am Stephen Hunter, preaching minister here at Glendale Road. So, let's talk about the book of Revelation. There are a lot of things that you've probably heard about it and misheard about it, and it can be quite a confusing book. So, how can we simplify some of the things about Revelation that we have often heard people use it? I think we have to understand a little bit about how it's used today, but also how it was used back when. Now, most evangelical commentators will assert that Revelation was written with three periods of time in mind. The things John saw in chapter 1, the things that were in chapters 2 and 3, and those that would take place afterward, beginning with chapters 4 or 6. Now, Charles Ryrie, in his study Bible notes, uh, advocates this, and John MacArthur, in his Bible handbook, advocates uh, after chapter 6. And their passage for this justification is chapter 1, verse 19, where it's written, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So what they argue for is that chapters 6 through 22 are end-time material, uh, often called eschatological material, that hinges upon a thousand-year reign. But here's the problem that I have with this. So in chapter 1, verse 3, and chapter 22, verse 10, Jesus says the time is near. In chapter 22, verse 6, it says these things, quote, must soon take place, end quote. Chapter 22, verses 12 and 20, Jesus said he was coming soon. Huh. The terms in English and Greek speak to a swift course of action, and certainly not one that will be delayed over two millennia. Now granted, the judgment scene in chapter 20 appears to be the true end-time material that may be exempt from the interpretation. However, at what point does this contextual divide speak to the original audience and then everyone that would come after somewhere in chapter 20 and onward, uh, unless you hold to a more symbolic interpretation of the final three chapters? Now, a case for understanding this time frame in which John's original audience may have understood this prophecy is found when comparing his work to other works of prophetic literature. The book of Daniel, in chapter 8, verse 26, Daniel was told to seal up his vision because it referred to many days from the time. He was also told that the book was to remain sealed, quote, until the time of the end, end quote, in chapter 12, verse 4. So as time goes on, we, uh, as time goes on, knowledge would increase as to the culmination of these prophecies. So he was urged to go his way because the words of his prophecy were sealed till the end of time, chapter 12, verse 9. So when you study history along with Daniel's prophecy, it reveals that it wasn't for another 400 years that those kingdoms came which he had been told of in the vision in chapter 2. Therefore, Daniel would not live to see the fulfillment of the prophecies. So, this explains him being told to seal the book. So, the sealing of a prophecy book, or book of prophecy, looked ahead to a distant period. 
But when John wrote Revelation, the angel told him not to seal the words of this book. Revelation 22, verse 10. Why? Because the time was at hand. So if Daniel's prophecy saw fulfillment some 400 years later, and he was told to seal the book, would not John's prophecy have been fulfilled long before that same span of time since he was told not to seal his book? Hmm. Something worth thinking about. Now, I believe when you get to the judgment scene later in the Revelation, I believe at that point and onward, that, at least to me, uh, or what you could, what you can consider in time, uh, matters. And because Revelation is a very symbolic book, uh, and shouldn't be taken literally, we have to, we have to treat it as the type of literature that it is, which is apocalyptic literature. And this type of literature was prevalent from about 200 BC to 200 AD. So probably around, uh, let's see here in chapter 20, I would say probably maybe beginning chapter 20 verse 7 or chapter 20 verse 11 to the end of the book, uh, these are, you know, those end time, actual end time prophecies. I think the majority of it was fulfilled within the lifetime of most of the original audience. That's just my belief. Okay, so there are two concepts that people are always interested about with the book of Revelation. The first one is the 144,000 that we read about in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. I'll not read those verses. Well, maybe I will. I'll, I'll read a little bit of it, but not the whole thing. Revelation 7, verse 1. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on earth, or sea, or against any tree. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to damage the earth and sea, saying, Do not damage the earth or sea or the trees until we have marked the servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. And I heard a number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed out of every tribe of the people of Israel. And then from verses 5 through 8 goes on to list the, the various tribes. Now, according to Jewish thought, the four winds stood at each corner of the compass. And the winds could destroy a nation, Jeremiah 49:36, or those winds could bring new life, Ezekiel 37, verse 9. Zechariah portrays these winds as chariots pulled by different teams of horses, which leave the Lord's presence and go out into all the earth. You can read about that in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. Jesus taught that at, the, that at his coming, during the destruction of Jerusalem, that the angels would gather the elect from the four winds in Matthew 24, verse 31. But they're coming to place a seal on the faithful of God. Now, to understand this, you have to read Ezekiel chapter 9, because that really sets the backdrop for sealing God's faithful. This imagery of the seven executioners in Ezekiel 9 is present in Babylonian literature as well. There, they punish those having committed religious offenses, as is in the case of Ezekiel. 
Let me get back there to O Zeke. I got a new Bible, so of course the books are still in the same order, but I'm the pages stick together very easily. I'm sure you can appreciate that. So Ezekiel 9 verse 4 And said to him, Go through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of those who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So the imagery of Ezekiel 7 would have reminded the audience steeped in idolatry about the impending punishment that comes from Yahweh, their God. Now, the mark on their forehead in Hebrew was the Hebrew consonant Tav. This was the last character of the Hebrew alphabet. And it looked, now in its form at the time that Ezekiel was written, the Paleo-Hebrew uh, period, it would have looked like a modern X or a cross. Now here's what's neat. The Greek letter Chi was equivalent to Tav and was the first letter in Jesus' name, or in Christ's name in Greek. Now, a third-century theologian by the name of Origen wrote this. He said, A third person, one of those who believe in Christ, said the form of the Tav in the Old Hebrew script resembles the cross, and it predicts the mark which is to be placed on the foreheads of Christians. So, pretty neat little connection there. In Revelation, the seal separates God's faithful from the faithless. Now, there's a writing that was written in the first century B.C., called the Psalms of Solomon, obviously not inspired, but it gives a little insight into the marking of God's people. In chapter 15, verses 6 through 8, For the mark of God is upon the righteous for salvation. Famine, sword, and death shall be far from the righteous, for they shall pursue sinners and overtake them, and those who do lawless, lawlessness shall not escape the judgment of the Lord. So, in Christianity, we read about sealing in the New Testament. For example, Ephesians 1.13 and 4.30, the Asian churches were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, this wasn't a physical mark, as you might think, but it was a mark distinguishable only by God and His agents of wrath. And it distinguished the faithful from the wicked. So the seal in Revelation is to protect God's faithful just as it did in Ezekiel. So, when you look at the tribes mentioned in the 144,000, the list in Revelation of the 12 tribes differ from all other lists. Reuben usually heads the list, but Judah does in this case. And that's likely the tribe, uh, rather, that's likely because that's the tribe Jesus came from, as, as him being the lion of the tribe of Judah. But in Revelation, John included Manasseh while omitting, omitting Ephraim and Dan. So, since this group is spared divine wrath, but not earthly persecution, it may be that there'll be those who complete the number of the slain souls under the altar that you read about in Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11. So, the twelve tribes are used figuratively for Jewish Christians, James chapter 1, verse 1. Jewish Christians were predominant over the first decade of the early church and staying with the Jewish identity, there being the first fruits, according to Revelation 14.4. That was also well founded as spoken of by the Jews. 
So if this concerns Jewish believers, the great multitude in Revelation 7 were Gentile believers. So this could just reference the church, because in Galatians 6.16, the church is referred to as God's new Israel. Whoever they were, they sang a new song described as the roar of rushing waters, a loud peal of thunder and harpists playing their harps. No heavenly creature could learn this song because participation is limited to those redeemed from the earth, centered on the redemption by the Lamb from the beast. They were virgins who were blameless. This may mean that they maintained ritual purity before battle. Later on, Babylon, which is Rome, is referred to as the mother of harlots, and those who consort with her would have defiled themselves. So, there's a little explanation of the 144,000. Hopefully that was clear and concise and not clear as mud. Okay, next let's talk about the mark of the beast that you find in Revelation 13, verses 11 through 18. Now, in chapter 13, one beast is represented while another arises from the earth in verse 11. These two beasts are allies of Satan and his work, as you read in you'll read in chapter 12, verse 9. And if you read the book through, when you leave chapter 12, the point was made that the dragon made war with the woman's offspring. Chapter 13 shows how he planned to do just that. However, God gave his people particular insights to help them stay the course. And some of these insights you'll read in, uh, let's go to Revelation chapter 13, beginning verses 9 and 10. And then we'll read verse 18. Revelation 13, verse 9. Let anyone who has an ear li listen. If you are to be taken captive, into captivity you go. If you kill with the sword, with the sword you must be killed. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now look at verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. So God is giving these insights to the recipients of this letter so that they can stay the course and remain faithful as they endure the persecution. So the first beast is mentioned in chapter 13, verse 1, is also mentioned in chapter 11, verse 7, and is later pictured as coming from the abyss in 17.3 and verses 7 and 8 of chapter 17. Now this beast is often referred to as the beast, while the second beast is later referred to as the prophet. You'll read about the prophet in chapter 16.13, chapter 19.20, chapter 20, verse 10. The first beast receives a mortal wound, and many have used this to argue that Nero was alive since he was the first to persecute Christians. But at the end of the first century, Dio Chrysostom wrote, Even now everyone wishes Nero were alive, and most believe that he is. Now, there were others who said they believed that Nero was alive in the year 69, the year 80, and the years 88 and 89. This may be referring more to Nero's work of persecuting Christians, or the spirit thereof, rather than the man himself. So the first beast was thought to have been the Roman Empire. The second beast's primary function was to persuade men to worship the first beast, which may allude to Roman emperor worship. 
This beast is called the prophet or false prophet and appears as a lamb but speaks like a dragon. The imagery of the lamb reminds us of Jesus, but this beast is the proverbial wolf in sheep's clothing. This beast may have been the organization responsible for enforcing emperor worship, an organization called the Concilia that existed in Rome. When you look at uh, chapter 13, verse 15, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And this really does align with history because when Christians were being persecuted in the later 1st and early 2nd century, they were often interrogated and after being interrogated, they were told if you will offer incense to the image of Caesar and if you will say Lord Caesar, then we'll let you go. But Christians would not offer incense to the idol of Caesar and nor would they say Lord Caesar they would only say Lord Christ. Okay, the mark of the beast. Roman slaves and disobedient soldiers received marks on their hands and foreheads. Well, their hands or foreheads. And this denoted that they were devoted to a certain master or God. Now, Paul used similar language in Galatians 6.17 when he referred to himself as bearing the marks of Jesus on his body. So, that was kind of a common way, a common idiom of communicating something. The mark is a counterpart of the seal of God that we see in chapter 7 with the 144,000. God sealed the 144,000, but this mark designates who belongs to the beast. So whoever had the beast's mark was allowed to transact business as we read about what the beast does. Now, archaeologists have uncovered documents given to image worshippers as proof of having offered emperor worship. And beginning in the reign of Tiberius, all business documents had to be sealed by the government stamp. And it was often the priesthoods of the cities, the concilia, who applied these stamps. You also have trade guilds that ruled many cities, Thyatira being one of them. And if you didn't belong to that guild, that was closely aligned with the god, you couldn't transact business. So this mark of the beast is very likely those documents to say you are an image worshiper. Now in verse 18, where it says, for it is the number of a person, I'm not sure why they put a person I would probably translate that as humanity because the Greek term is anthropos. We get our word anthropology from that, the study of the study of humanity. Now there is another word that you could translate as a person, but anyway. John seems to be uh, communicating that this number represents humanity, and the truth is humanity cannot overcome God Almighty. So, we've talked a little bit about the background of the book of uh, Revelation, the 144,000, and the mark of the beast. So, when people make a very big deal of all these things, they're really simple if we study them in the historical context and the literary context of the book of Revelation. Hope you have a great rest of the week, and Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday.